You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, it's Max. Before we get started, a quick word from our friends at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. We've been telling you about their Master's in New Arts Journalism program all fall, but you cannot wait any longer. You have to get your application in right now. If you are interested in writing about arts and culture, there is not a better place in the world to learn how to do it. Uh, SAIC is a fantastic institution, and it's right in the heart of Chicago. Where else could you want to be? Go to saic.edu slash longform. That's saic.edu slash longform to learn more. Get your application in. Go learn how to write about arts and culture. Here is the show. Hello, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I am Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer, Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hello. Hey. You got, uh, you got two dogs in here. Got two dogs, man. Got two dogs. I don't even dogs. know who the second dog. Who is this other dog? Uh, that that other dog is Tom Mayer's dog. Oh, Tom yeah. Mayer became a father taking care of his dog. Congratulations Tom to Tom Mayer, editor of the uh, Atavist Collection. Yeah, a very fine, the finest editor. What's that? Uh, What's that collection w. W. called? Norton. It's called Love and Ruin. You can go and pick it up right now. Is, is a tribute on, to Tom Mayer. Is it on Amazon? It is on Amazon. Oh, great. <laughs> and all online bookstores. <laughs> Congratulations you know. to Tom and Courtney, friends of the podcast all. Uh, here is who is on the show this week, Brooke Gladstone. Got Brooke Gladstone back on the show. She is the host, of course, of uh, On the Media. And uh, now's an interesting time for the media. And I actually, I was genuinely just curious about how the hell... Uh, Brooke Gladstone's feeling right now. You mean because of the transition from analog to digital cable? <laughs> that's right. That's right. It's actually the print digital divide. Yeah, great. Uh, so yeah, I went and talked to Brooke and uh, she was wise as always. As always, we are brought to you by MailChimp. Uh, 14 million people's emails come with the confidence that goes with every MailChimp account. Why not get one yourself? Thank you, MailChimp. And now here's Max with Brooke Gladstone. Time is limited. It's kind of always on my mind. Mortality. Always has been, really. Started wearing black when I was 13 to <laughs> commemorate the passing of my childhood. And as you can see, very little change in the uh, wardrobe. You are wearing like uh, hot pink leggings, just That's for the true. record. That's true. That is true. That's, that's not like the, the glasses half, half full in some bleak. eyes. <laughs> it's not all bleak. I'm trying to look on the bright side. And we do live in fascinating times. That's why... Um, 
Brooke, that's why we're here. I'm hoping that you can help me understand the bright side. <laughs> that's what you're here for. You know, it is the weirdest thing. Let me tell you, Max, the weirdest thing is the most common word that I hear from people who really love to listen to the show on the media is uh, how comforting it is. And A, I don't think it's comforting to listen to. <laughs> B, it certainly ain't comforting to make. And so I've been trying to puzzle this out. Why comforting? Why this word over and over and over again? Uh, and I think it's just trying to uh, describe something that feels like a great black ball of panic. You know, create some definitions, some categories, a potential way to think about this, and even possibly a way to react to it. And essentially, that's probably why it's comforting, because it's better than this great roiling twister. Uh, <laughs> I just want to say that I already feel so validated for being here because you just in, you, you just introduced the reason that I wanted to talk to you so much better than I could have. Uh, big, dark ball of panic feels familiar. Feels, it, uh, and every day, you know, it just gets closer and darker and more swirly. But look, at the same time, have you ever seen a populace so energized? I mean, two national demonstrations. Biggest march in the history of this country. Right, right. I mean, that one, and then the one following the Muslim ban, uh, which uh, went all across and spontaneously, but no real leaders. And I think that's crucial. I mean, the no real leader thing obviously was tried before with the Occupy Wall Street. There was consciously no real leader thing. But this, you know, there's nothing that is a greater motivator than fear. How are you feeling? Uh, uh, there is a kind of, uh, you know, a little iron fist of anxiety twisting my guts for sure. But I do have an, uh, an unusual, I think, ability to take the long view. I can see things from 100 years away or 200 years away or a thousand years away. Uh, I'd love to listen to uh, Dan Carlin's Hardcore History podcast. I don't know if you've ever heard it. Sure. But he, uh, you know, he talks often about, and I think I want to get him on the show, about how there are moments in history prior to the Renaissance over several occasions where something apocalyptic would happen and that would sort of put progress back. And sometimes... One ancient civilization will look at the ruins of another even more ancient civilization and say, wow, what kind of people created that? Well, we haven't had that experience since the Renaissance of a big step backward. And I don't think we will. But it's interesting to think that we have had times when that's happened. The big difference, obviously, is we have the capacity to destroy the whole world, which we haven't had before. And uh, I don't think that's a little thing. Um, but again, there is this weird sort of circuit breaker on my fear. There's a circuit breaker on my terror. There's a place where it just flips up, flip, flip, flip. And then I go, well, we're all going to die anyway. So we just do the best we can in the time that we've got. Try to make the world better. 
that's all you have ahead of you. Don't think of immortality. That happens to a handful of people. I and mean, literally, you can count them <laughs> on one hand over the course of entire human history. So, you know, set your goals fairly low, and you may be able to achieve them. How's that? I mean, I feel better already. <laughs> But I, I'm not. A lot of people wouldn't feel better because. Well, I'm not very worried about immortality. I am worried about right now. Mm-hmm. Right now is uh, well, it's worrisome. Yeah, it is. It is. And I appreciate the long view. I like. I, I already feel like my my like uh, blood pressure is down a little bit, but. But what how, about right now? Yeah, can we talk about right now yeah. just for a second? And I uh, and. I've thought about this a lot, and I kind of pride myself because I'm not much of a prognosticator. Uh, the Times, Linda Greenhouse, said something that I've been saying for a long time, which is we still have the courts. We still have laws. Even if Congress is completely dysfunctional, even if there aren't enough people to stop really bad things from happening, because people in the House are only really beholden to a few extreme people who vote in primaries, but we still have the courts. You have two things. You have political pressure that can be applied by calling congresspeople representatives. They count those calls. And you have the optics of being in the street. Emails, petitions, I don't think they do that much, but these congressional offices do count phone calls. And they do see the optics, especially in their own communities. So people literally have to act on whatever their anxieties are. Take action. That will calm you down. That will make you feel that you have a measure of control. And it will actually have an impact in the aggregate. I believe that's already happened. I think we've seen it. How do you think the press is doing? Uh... I think we're entering into a golden era for the press, actually. Uh, they, as an institution, have their backs up. Um, we're talking about the mainstream media now. Okay. I think that one of the most pernicious biases of the media that I've always seen and worried about is something I call access bias, where you'll make a trade in order not to piss off your major sources that will give you quotes, either anonymously or otherwise. Usually, those quotes aren't worth the trade-off you've made. You know, the trade-off essentially being, there's some things that I won't say in order to make sure that you continue to return my calls. Generally, it doesn't help. You have a government now which is leaking absolute, like, you know. Yeah, someone was on your show this week and, and used the word salivating. <laughs> yes, I know. The press is salivating. But, I mean, they're like, uh, you know, they're like the levees in Katrina. They're just filling the bowl of Washington with all kinds of information and gossip and uh, documents and all sorts of things that A, weren't available before, and B, the kind of structures that had happened in the Washington press corps, which really depended on this access, is no longer so important. I thought it was significant this week that CNN wanted Mike Pence on. And they said, no, you can't have Mike Pence, but you can have Kellyanne Conway. And they said, 
Mm, no thanks. That's a beginning. Why is that significant? Because you know that someone lies. You know that you only want that person not to advance the course of human knowledge, not even to provide the position of the uh, administration. This is something that Jay Rosen said about Kellyanne Conway. She'll say whatever it is is necessary to deflect the moment. She isn't reflecting the president. The president contradicts what she says. She contradicts what the president says all the time. So you're not getting insight into what's going on in the White House. You're just getting a deflection shield. So the question is, do you do it for essentially numerical balance? But what is your real mission? What's your real purpose? To inform the public, not to cover your ass. Just to take that metaphor one step further, basically what you're saying is uh, media is like getting back in touch with its own ass. <laughs> yes. Or they're, uh, yeah, they're taking a good hard look at it. <laughs> <laughs> they have uncovered it and they are now taking a good hard look at it and, uh, you know, seeing what they need to do. We are following closely the lawsuits. We have many stories about the impacts of the Muslim ban. We have many stories about his, well, maybe not enough stories in my view, but certainly the Times uh, had a front page story about how he hasn't divested from his companies in any way. I hope there's more of that. I hope that there's much more pressure if not from the press, and certainly not from the Congress, then from the street to get his tax returns out there. I hope that some of the agencies that he can't utterly control, like the FBI, are working on that dossier to see how much can be verified uh, within its uh, 35 salacious but fascinating pages. You know, how much of that is real? What did you think of uh, Ben Smith's decision to publish the dossier in BuzzFeed? I thought it was a really thoughtful decision. It was a decision that I would not have made. I understand why he did. You know, that who are we to decide what the public can see and cannot see? But I do think that if we're going to be furious at Comey, for sending a note that he knew was going to be uh, instantly leaked to the press about reopening Hillary Clinton's emails because of something that was on Uma's machine, and we felt that probably totally screwed the election, then we've, we have to at least be true to our own principles. If this stuff is not solid enough to present to the public, and you start presenting it and say, make your own decision, Make your own decision when the intelligence community hasn't made its own decision. I think it's disingenuous. Well, I think it's sincere, but I think it is not fulfilling our mission, which is to try and present the best information we can. Well, part of what's interesting about it is, is that the logic is changing. Like the rules are changing. And I think part of what people are trying to figure out right now is how... Uh, how much, if at all, the lines have shifted. I think the argument, though, or the, the shift, is occurring maybe a little too late, in my view, over how much a reporter should reveal of his or herself. Yeah. Um, something that David Weinberger said many years ago, transparency is the new objectivity. Give people more data points to work with. 
you know, here's where I stand. Here's how I voted. Uh, in the old days, you tried to reveal as little of yourself as possible so that people would feel comfortable with the good work that you were doing, that you believed in. Now, because everything is pretty much public, they'll use that stuff against you, whatever it is that you do as a citizen or a human being, unless you reveal it. So the idea of being transparent, the idea of presenting your views, it really depends on the venue and what the expectations are. When we started our show 16 years ago, I can tell you for a fact that NPR, which was... Uh, Distributing the show, although it didn't have any editorial impact, it did have its name on it. It did contribute some money for some years to the show. Uh, didn't like the choices that Bob and I had made, Bob Garfield, my co-host, in being more transparent, in expressing ourselves directly, in not using ridiculously circumlocution phrases like, so what do you say to the people who say that right. you are, I mean, if I felt that this was the case, I would say, but aren't you just blah, 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 and let them respond to me, not to some vague other out there. I feel that you're a better listener's surrogate, even if you're expressing things in ways that they don't themselves agree with or embrace, just by being honest about who you are and being fair and letting the person fully respond and later in the editing to make sure that their very best response is there. And we've never edited to win the argument. So then people who have gotten used to us over the years know who we are, but still trust, I think mostly trust, that we will provide the most honest argument, the most direct questions and grope to some new territory the best we can as flawed human beings and not as voices from on high. There's two things about on the media that are different, though. W one is that uh, you guys made that decision, what, 16 years ago? Yeah. And the other... The rest is, of the world has uh, moved in that direction. Yeah, but the other <laughs> is like on the media is... Um, it's like a, it's an inside baseball show. Oh no, it's not. No, no, Is that, Max. Have I just said a horrible thing? Yes, yes, it's not. It is not. First of all, it is not for journalists. It's not Columbia oh, really Journalism review of the, of the air. It's always been my goal. And I think one reason why the show continues to grow, and usually at this point, a show doesn't continue to grow, is because it's for people who don't care about the media, but would care about it if they understood why it was worth caring about the media, how the narratives are framed, how the messages come through to you. Anyway, that the one talk to the many or the many talk to the many, mm -hmm. that is what we talk about. And my view is that, and it's very hard. I mean, my job on the show is mostly to kill ideas because they're too inside. Unless you can convince me that there is a stake here, stakes for the average person, not for the politics media hobbyist, but actual real stakes that can have an influence on the life of an average person, then I don't want to do it. So no, no, no. Okay, I'm sorry. Feel bad. I've come to your house and I've insulted you, and I apologize. You insulted me in my house. 
Oh no, I'm just sorry that you perceive it that way. I it was, I, it was a it was a lazy phrase. <laughs> what I meant to say is like, uh, your show is on some level. Uh, it's smart. It doesn't. It doesn't talk down to the audience. I mean, at least it's as smart as we are. You got to at least let me finish this. <laughs> All right. Uh, what I meant to say is, it is smart. It's also meta. Can you at least give me that? Sure. It's absolutely meta. And it meta. would be a, a significant problem, I think, to have the kinds of conversations that you want to have on the show if you and Bob were journal automatons. Ugh. It just wouldn't work, right? The show would suck. Well, and thanks for that. It no, would, it's that, true. That's the only point I was going to say. It was mm-hmm. like, you couldn't do on the media the way that you guys want to do it and not be transparent. And you've been doing it for 16 years. What I, what I was actually, the question I had was for places that are not meta, that are trying and have always tried on some level to play it down the middle, who have done the, I'm going to give five minutes to this person and five minutes to that person. For those folks... I'm interested in what you think of this moment in terms of transparency and how quickly you can get those muscles into shape if that's the decision you want to go. Or, I mean, a lot of places seem to me to be almost doubling down on their middle of the road. Like? Well, you guys did a show last week, right? That was about uh, whether or not journalists should be allowed to go to marches. And the Times sent a whole company-wide email before the Women's March that said, no one's going to this march. You cannot go to this march. Uh, clearly, journalists are struggling with that choice. And the Times made it very clear, nothing about how we do this is changing. But so, it was the same way around the dossier. I mean, they wouldn't even mention what was in there, right? Right. Uh, so that feels to me like he has made the decision that... Those rules don't change. I think you might be conflating a few things. Oh, great. Um, being politically active isn't even necessarily a transparency issue. I mean, I've spoken to reporters at the Times and elsewhere who will concede that when you start taking political action, you have put your stake into the ground. You have laid claim to a position, and it is human nature to do what you can to defend that position, that it can actually influence how you process information that comes in, that they stare inward and they go, I don't want to proclaim a position because I don't want to commit. Because if I commit, a whole bunch of other psychological little puzzle pieces get fit in there and you're kind of trapped. It's like the person who buys a car and then really wants you to buy the same car to sort of validate their position. So in a way, they're protecting their own psychology. But that is different from the five minutes on the one side, five minutes on the other side thing. That is a habit. It doesn't make your reporting better. It makes it worse because you have to apply judgment to some degree, as to whether two positions are equal or whether they are very unequal, in which case, wouldn't you be serving the public better using your understanding of the issue to present them in their proper perspectives? So those are the sorts of things that the Times is reckoning with, when to use the word lie, 
When is falsehood or misdirection more appropriate? Do you want to call something fake news? Or now that that term has been completely co-opted, go back and be more specific. Talk about something that is a conspiracy. Talk about something that is a lie. Talk about, you know, any number of of things, you know, a forgery, whatever, make the, make the charge specific or offer the fact in the most precise language you can. I think the Times is moving a great deal. It's traditional style towards a more straightforward way of reporting these stories and therefore a more honest way and more useful way of reporting these stories. So the fact that they've taken a position and this is not a position they've just taken. This has been their traditional position all along. It's not really doubling down. This is what it's always been. You don't participate in demonstrations. You don't put a sign on your lawn, this kind of thing. And so they're just saying, we won't change that. But when it comes to handling the information, we will drop some of our traditional ticks mm -hmm. that no longer serve the public in this moment and we will evolve our coverage so that it's more useful. So I'm okay with that. I mean, it's, you know, you go somewhere, there's a way of doing business. I know that on our show, people have very much wanted to participate in these demonstrations. And I am, I see public demonstration as an important part of this moment in, in serving as a check on power. Whether journalists should do that I'm glad that I'm not in that management role, so I don't have to make that decision. I choose oh, I'm not, not to, because I, uh, I, uh, I do enough position taking on the program, so I don't really need to, to go out there and do that. I feel like I'm doing it in my way. Well, let me stand in for the sort of younger journalists who might be listening to this mm -hmm. and struggling with that decision. If there aren't clear lines, if you're not getting an email from your boss that says, we don't do this. How would you help that person think about how politically active to be while also being the best journalist they can be? Is there any boss out there that would not tell you what the rules are of the place that you work for? You mean like freelance journalists? Yeah, not everyone. Not everyone's got uh, those those sweet full time jobs. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, not sure you've heard. It's uh, it's tough to get a job these days. Yes, I know it is. I know it is. I think you have to uh, to know yourself. You know, if you get... Look, some of the best journalism that has ever been done in America is advocacy journalism. I mean, you go back to McClure's and the New Masses and Ida Tarbell on Standard Oil or, or Lincoln Steffens. Uh, these are the greats of American journalism. They made no secret of their political persuasion. And it didn't undermine their journalism because their journalism was so good. And I think if your journalism is really, really good, then going out and marching doesn't make a bit of a difference these days as a freelancer. I mean, there are lots of people who became major, very important journalists at NPR that had started out at Pacifica, which is far to the left of NPR. And people adapt to the environment that they're in. I think that you do what's right for you at the time. And as long as you're 
gathering information that people can use. And as long as you can trust yourself to tell the truth, even if you are fully committed to the cause, and so much so that people won't find fault with your journalism, that's the most important thing. If you get deeply committed to a cause to the extent where you can't listen to people on the other side, you can't hear them, you can't cultivate them as sources, you can't get their documents, then you're undercutting the work that you do and what the mission of any journalist is, which is to tell the truth and to, I think, to help people make the world better. I know now I sound like I'm quoting Silicon Valley. You know, we want to make the world a better place by increasing our profit line right, by, by five I, bazillion IPO-ing. percent. It's not yeah. exactly that. Yeah. Don't, 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 don't uh, be but, too hard on yourself. But you know what I mean. Hey, I'm going to put things on hold for just a second, tell you a little bit about a sponsor this week. It's Texture. And uh, if you were listening to this podcast then my guess is you like reading magazine articles. And if you like reading magazine articles, my guess is you're going to love Texture. It's all of the top magazines in one single app. You can enjoy great articles anywhere. And the app was actually selected by Apple as one of the year's most innovative. It was a best of 2016. They've got a special offer going right now. You can get 14 days free plus three months for just 10 bucks. That's 14 days free and three more months for just $10. They've got over 200 magazines. And here's the thing that's cool. They've got a bunch of magazines that are not just freely available on the web. There's stuff in texture that you'll get that you can't get anywhere else. And uh, to show you the breadth of what they've got. They've actually put together a guide for our listeners uh, to articles about the Oscars, people who are nominated, interviews, features, profiles. It's great stuff, and a bunch of them are not available on the web. So go check it out. Go to texture.com slash longform. That's texture.com slash longform. See these articles that you can't see anywhere else, and uh, give Texture a shot. Let's get back to Brooke. You were saying when we sat down that you think this is going to be a good moment for journalism. Mm-hmm. Tell me why you think there's going to be lots of really, really good journalism. Well, a few weeks ago, we had uh, Politico's Jack Schaefer on the show. And, uh, and I think he described the situation so, so well, as did Jay Rosen of NYU in the Press Think blog. The fact is that we're at a moment where there's a huge number of leaks coming out from a disgruntled bureaucracy. There are people of goodwill who want to keep the country from rolling back, you know, a century or more. There is an environment of activism in all parts of Washington in a really good way and in the rest of the country, all across the country. And for the press to refocus on documents and investigation and on voices in the mid-levels of these bureaucracies where the work really gets done, and to bring that information out to a much greater extent already in the two weeks of this administration than has been practically in my lifetime, to me, is a sign that reporting is going to get better across the board. Now, we have 
a huge problem on the local level. We have no reporters in state houses anymore. This is where the stuff that affects people on an immediate level happens more than anywhere else. I mean, the state house is where the world can change for a community. And as we've reported on the show, graft and corruption happens just out in the open. And there's no reporter there to see it because local reporting has taken such a hit with the, the collapse of the traditional newspaper business model. There hasn't been enough coming up, emerging to take its place. So that's a real problem. And what I'm hoping to see, what would be so wonderful to see, is if the elevation of Donald Trump creates a renewed appreciation for what a free press, a free and vigorous press can do so that people can support it, so these resources that have gone elsewhere can be returned to where they're needed most. I mean, this is so vitally important, and we've seen the beginning of it. I mean, from a practical level, I don't think the New York Times has ever had more subscribers. We've had people just spontaneously supporting our program and WNYC, and uh, we're not the only ones. I mean, all across the board, the Washington Post, solid news organizations that still have the resources to do important investigative work or just having their eyes on what's going on, those outlets which have been ignored, which have had dwindled, are now experiencing a real boost in resources and in attention and people feeling committed to keeping these organizations alive. I mean, what could be better for quality journalism than people who finally realize that they have to pay for it? <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I mean, we're in America. <laughs> what could be more important than that? You seem energized. <laughs> who isn't? <laughs> I mean, when we talked a year ago, you were kind of, um, uh, I don't know, I don't know if you remember the end of that conversation. Do you remember it? Tell me. Well, maybe we can listen to it for a second. I'm not going to get any richer or more famous than I am now. This is it. This is it. This is fine. This is better than I ever expected I would be, right? I'm totally off the career path. The beautiful thing is that I just don't have any more fucks to give. Yeah. Well, <laughs> right. Fundamentally, everything I said last year is still true. Every single word of it is still true. But this job has really become more interesting again. I mean, my plan was to get one of those grants to the American University in Paris or in Berlin or in Rome or something, go there and write a book about early hominids. I really care about them. The Neanderthals, the Denisovans, and how we have interpreted what our relationship with them was and all of that through culture and also how this fight over our beginnings has not ended. There's still huge arguments in the scientific community over it. It is such a vibrant field, man's beginning. And maybe that 
relates to this. I'd like to take the, uh, you know, 40,000 year view of man's evolution. I really wanted to write that book and I was going to do it next year. And now I realize that this time is just too interesting. So I'll have to put it off <laughs> at least till the midterms. <laughs> so you are energized. I am energized. I'm really interested in my job again. People care about it. It feels like people need it. And when bad things happen, if I can't report on it, then I can't process it. I mean, this was even true when my mother died. I took a tape recorder. I didn't ever report on it, but somehow I needed, it's like people who need to do something with their hands or they get all, you know, edgy. I won't process it unless I have to process it. Mm -hmm. And as long as I stay in this job, I have to process it. And that's good for me. <laughs> have you learned anything recently? Huge amounts, huge amounts. I've learned so much about how easy it is to redefine reality in this era of billions of filter bubbles, how easy it is to cast doubt on what is undeniably true. And I think that that's what frightens me the most. I actually think that's what frightens most people the most. How do we make sure that we all live in the same world, or do we? And I think the next step for all of us is to try and figure out something about the worlds that other people live in and see if there's any common ground there so we can start to rebuild. And I know we're not in that place right now, a lot of us, but we have to go there. We have to go and try to understand those people whose choices haven't made any sense to us. Do you think that's going to happen? I think it has to happen. And I think it's part of the role of the media to help that happen. But fundamentally, it's the role of human beings, consumers of the narratives that are out there, to try and broaden their own understanding has to happen and going to happen are different things? Um, well, we did have a civil war. We did have irreconcilable differences. We've seen a complete inability for there to be peace in the Middle East. <laughs> uh, we've seen divisions that have gone on decades after decades after decades in explosions. I guess I believe that there's enough common ground. I think that the world is changing in a way that people think it's within the power of politicians to change back, and it's not. I think that we're going to see a generational shift that will make a difference. Are you following? Am I just pre-associating here or are you following me on this? What I mean to say is I think it sh must happen and I think it will happen because it will become clear that steel production and coal production isn't coming back to this country. It will become clear that the rights of marginalized communities 
and identity politics are here to stay. And I think that's a generational thing. I think many things that are vital to one side clearly will stay here. And then things that have to be fixed on the other side in those hollowed out white, formerly middle-class areas that relied on strong unions and industry and so on. Where's the job program? Why don't we have a jobs program? If we had a jobs program, then so much of this would have at least started to recede. People would have seen that money was being spent on their needs. The Democrats didn't do that. The Republicans certainly aren't going to do that. The money that's supposedly going to go into infrastructure is going to go into companies. They'll hire people for temporary labor at crappy wages, and then the jobs will go away and these people will be no better than they were before. I mean, it's a temporary fix at best. There are ways to address those issues, and they're actually democratic issues, but they didn't address them. They had other priorities. That was a mistake. So what is your Brooke Gladstone's... uh role in making that happen? Well, I guess my role, I don't know if you heard this, but recently we did a five-part series on poverty in America, which was probably the hardest thing I've ever done on the radio. It was all flavors of poverty, white poverty, black poverty, urban city poverty, rural Appalachian poverty, what's different about them? What do they have in common? Who are these people? Let's hear their stories. Let's hear the details of their stories in their own voices and weave the data and the statistics around those stories. I was really proud of the series and I felt like that was the beginning of some of what we can do to address this. Why was it so hard? Because there's so much information, and I had made a commitment to myself that these people weren't going to be spoken for by experts, but I still needed the experts, and I still needed the data. So it was a, a difficult production job, and it turned out to be much longer series than we anticipated it would be. But I think it was a real success. I think we were able to do everything that we wanted to do in terms of making the situation real and palpable and going back far enough so you could understand how it happened this way and then finishing up with how you could begin to truly address it in a way that would make sense to these people, even though not necessarily politically. Like welfare-to-work programs don't work for most of these people because they're not supported enough to give them training, to give them money for food and rent and these things so they can go to school so they can get good jobs. So there's that. Another thing is something like 81% of them can't go to work. They're seniors, they're students, they're taking care of sick people, their children, they're disabled. You know, it's just, it's crazy. So many of our plans for easing poverty are based on political considerations and not the reality on the ground. So you want to bring that out. You want people to voice 
support for things that haven't had a great uh, round of support because the poor are largely invisible. We were trying to make the invisible visible. And I think maybe that's the answer to your question. Try to make the invisible visible. The last time we talked, I asked you about optimism. Mm. And uh, Remind me. <laughs> you, you said uh, pro. Pro-optimism? Yeah, that you, that you are. That's where you, that's where you came down on that one. On what? That you're an optimistic uh, person. In general? I said I was an optimistic person? I'm pretty sure. Wow, okay. <laughs> Go back and check the tape. I always thought of myself as a dark person, but you must have caught me on a good day. I can totally characterize myself differently depending on the day. It's not so much that I'm an optimist, but this is still a great country, so we're okay there. Uh, except for those people who aren't okay, which we now have to pay attention to in a way that we perhaps didn't think we had to before. So this can make us a more engaged, more moral nation, one that cares more about the people we haven't seen. So that's a good thing. I'm so much more interested in my job now than I was a year ago when we had our last conversation. I feel the stakes are higher and that it matters more than it did a year ago. Do you have some fucks to give now? Uh, about my personal ambition? No, actually, those fucks are still gone and they haven't come back. I, uh... I'm still not going to be any richer or any more famous after this. But I'll have a couple of really interesting years, and time is what matters most. That's what mattered most last year, too. What am I going to do with these years that I have left? You know, it just so happens that my parents didn't live that long. So I think that a lot of people in their minds kind of think that they'll live as long as their parents, even though there's no reason to think that. It's more of a, of a quirk than it is based on any empirical reality. But nevertheless, I feel as time goes, gets shorter, that I better get on with it and make sure that I get the most out of these years that I can. And now right here at this show, I have an opportunity for a couple of really interesting two years. I feel like you got a story to tell. I got a story to find <laughs> and then to tell. Brooke, thank you. Thanks, Max. This has been uh, this has been very helpful for me. <laughs> I appreciate you taking time out of your Sunday to just make me feel better. <laughs> Anything I can do. Drop by any time. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Long Form. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor this week was Mickey Capper, and our intern was Courtney Harrell. Thanks to them. Thanks to our sponsors, MailChimp, Texture, and the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. Get your application in. Thanks most of all, though, of course, to uh, my media therapist, Brooke Gladstone. She really did make me feel better. I called her. I was not feeling good, and uh, now I feel better. So I hope you do, too. We'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? 
I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Teen Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.